everybody. Welcome back to Yield Transformed, which is a series that we're doing, sort of a combination of US-China series and Climate Transform, which is our conversation with sort of senior asset managers on their strategies and outlook for the the months and, and years ahead. And it's pretty hard not to get interested about long volatility as a strategy, or certainly long volatility as an asymmetrical return profile, which is the name of our conversation today with Neil Jackson of 36 South, particularly in an environment when you've seen spiking energy prices, a US five-year note that goes above 1%, spiking US 10-year yields as well. Volatility is clearly front and center. And Neil with 36 South, which is a company based in London that specializes in the creation of management of asymmetrical profiles in for the sole purpose of, of crisis protection. Neil's been doing this for uh, just under, under 20 years, and he's a perfect guy to have join us today to discuss sort of the future of volatility as a strategy. And Neil, we were saying before, before the start that I have a lot of preconceived notions that are, many of them, I think, sound. I think some of them are probably flawed and I'd love to explore them a little later on. But can you talk a little bit today about, to start us off with the ethos of 36 South, how the company sort of came to being and talk a little bit about the philosophy of using long volatility strategies as portfolio protection? Hi, Paul. Thanks for the introduction. Hello, everyone. 36 South is, for those of you who are sailors, it's actually the latitude of Auckland and New Zealand. 36 South has an overweight of Kiwis amongst amongst the staff because the fund was actually founded just after the turn of the millennia in New Zealand, which is still a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sort of tail protection place for those who can and, and do think of a doomsday scenario to go and get a a property in New Zealand. I think a couple of the well-known film directors, etc., have, have all got themselves a doomsday property in New Zealand because it's a tiny island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that I don't even think nuclear touches unless it's a complete devastation of the planet. We invest in volatility. We buy volatility. And, and that's all we do. Um, we just buy and hold volatility. We put it in a drawer that says, open when smoking. And as long as you buy volatility below its its long run mean, so evaluate the amount that you're paying for volatility, then the expected return has to be positive. If you're paying less than the long run mean for volatility and give yourself enough time to be right, then somewhere during the lifetime of the options or swaptions, caps of flaws that you're buying, there must be an event that returns the long run mean back to back to me. And we've been doing this for long enough now that it's not just a thesis, it's well proven. So Neil, let's just talk about that exact phrase that you used, long-term mean, right? Now, if you were looking at the long-term mean of volatility back in 2007, that is very different to what the long-term mean was back in in 2012. I would argue that Mario Draghi may have altered the course of long-term mean back in, in, in 2012 with whatever it takes. I would argue that Jerome Powell and Mrs. Yellen, through their policy response, have adjusted what long-term means post-COVID. The ECB have maybe changed the definition of long-term mean for volatility around climate with their policy adjustment. So when you think about fair value for volatility, there's a there's a mathematical fair value, and then there's a forward expected fair value, right? Yep. Let's expand on this, but talk a little bit about the impacts of 
quantitative easing. You can go back as far as Japan if you want, right? But talk about the impacts of quantitative easing on the fair value of volatility. Yeah, I love it when we start really getting into the mathematics of volatility. And I tell you why I find it so fascinating. I started life as a, as a as a maths teacher, but that's not why I love getting into the mathematics of volatility, because in effect, volatility is an emotion. It's the human attempt to try and give a value to an unknown unknown, to actually price up unknown unknowns. It's no less of an emotion than love. And good luck to the mathematicians trying to put a value on love. And yet, in the financial space, saw a complete necessity to actually give a price on this stuff so that someone can go and buy it and someone can sell it. So here we are as mathematicians with a real empirical value on an emotion. And that's that's just fantastic. Definitely the effect of quantitative easing, the effect of central banks has impacted on how we feel about this stuff. And I can tell you it's impacted on on the way we feel because you just have to take a look at price. Now, I've gone the other way around. I've flipped this whole thing on its head. I'm saying that, yeah, the mathematicians can give you a number on how you feel, but I'm actually saying, no, it's actually how you feel that translates back into the number. And it's the impact of what central banks are doing, which has definitely lowered the long-run mean expectation of volatility in a number of places. No doubt we'll have time to expand a little more on, on what's the most important part of this whole discussion, and that is where can you get underlyings that are going to be or, or, or represent a Kelly criterion that give you an outsized probability of volatility compared to the volatility you're actually paying? Right. But again, let's, let's, I, I love that emotion. I love the emotional comparison here, right? Because emotions are in the here and now, right? So therefore, you know, so how one feels is a, is something which is based on a set of factors that are in the here and now, right? Yep. But clearly the expected return of volatility as an asset class is determined by the forward outlook for those emotions, right? And again, that, again, going into the modeling side of things, I mean, obviously you do this, you have been doing this for 20 years. I'm, I can only make an assumption that your modeling is, is very, very in-depth, right? So in terms of predicting the forward value of that volatility, the forward value of those emotions, how does one take that into account? And is it a function from a policy standpoint about the fact that you can't do what you do without having a forward view on where policy is heading? Yeah, I mean, forward expectations of volatility. When you're talking about an emotion, you're asking mathematicians and quants to price up how you're going to feel in a couple of years' time. In our case, we I've already mentioned we like to buy volatility for long enough that we can actually put it in a drawer and warehouse it for the, the enough time. And I'm talking, we, we have been known to have bought a 15-year option before. That's obviously on, on the outer end of how long you have to lock these things up in order for them to be successful. But th- that sort of duration, long duration option in our thinking starts anywhere from a year and beyond. Now, if you're asking people to have a guess how you're going to feel in 
10 years time. I'd love to know what the average length of marriages is. But <laughs> in, my, in my case, less than 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so there is that, yes. But what's interesting is that the forward price that options are priced on, now that's real. That's proper mathematical pricing because forward prices, unlike volatility, are not a prediction. They, in fact, are a level at which you cannot arbitrage that forward because you just take the pricing inputs. In the case of something like equities, you need to consider what the interest rate is. You need to consider what uh, dividends uh, are going to be paid and, and also the repo rate. And so with that in mind, you wind up with a, a forward price. In we do pan asset class options. We'll, we'll do we'll buy options of we'll buy volatility on interest rates and FX and commodities. Obviously, commodities you've got contango and backwardation, and I like to use those terms of contango and backwardation across all of the asset classes because it really does help to explain what we're really trying to do with emotion on very real and accurately priced forward curve. And what we're trying to do there to get a handle on how much we should quantify the emotion is if there is a forward curve which is in backwardation, i.e. the forward is below where the spot price is. Now, I must reiterate that this is not a prediction. The forward prices are below where the spot price is, not because that is the market pressure that believes that or thinks or has an emotion that perhaps sometime in the future, price is going to be less than it is today. No, not at all. If you look at, for example, Eurostox is is a very easy go-to example that I use to understand this. If you take the Eurostox 50, which is the the main uh, European equity index, and uh, you consider its value, let's take a bit of volatility out of the equation from the last or so and just go back to sort of 4175, which is, I think, Monday's value. The forward price, five-year forward price on the Eurostocks took us down to about 3,500. So that's some nearly 700-point discount from the current spot price. Sorry, that's five-year forward or 10-year forward? That's the five-year forward. Five-year forward. Yep. So... So this gets interesting, right? Because And the reason for that is because you've got negative interest rates and there is still a dividend. Uh, the dividends obviously are tradable. The interest rate futures are obviously tradable. And there is a repo rate as well, which is largely an interbank market. But nonetheless, it's, it's there and the futures price, therefore, of the Eurostocks is non-arbitrageable at around the 3,500 level, five years forward. So here's where things get real interesting. If you go and buy caution, so you go and buy volatility and you strike it below 3,500. And an example that I'd like to throw at you is perhaps like a 3,100 strike call option with five years in duration. Now, obviously, even, even on the forward basis, a 3,100 strike call option is in the money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very deep in the money compared to the spot price. But if you go in and price that up now, you can even just, if you use Bloomberg's op- option pricing, you will get a price that is going to be around about 896, call it 900 points for a 3,100 strike call. 25% now, pre- 25% premium of which 
the vast yep. majority of that is intrinsic value. Um, well, actually, all of it is intrinsic Sorry, all value. Sorry, yeah, all of it's intrinsic value. And, and some. And this is where things get really interesting because that's not at a, a ridiculous volatility. That's sort of 20, 21, 22%, 22% vol. And yet, if you add 3,100 strike to that 900 points you're paying, you get to 4,000. And the spot of the Eurostox is 4,175 for, for this example. So you'll realize that if you buy, if you spend 900 points and you hold it for five years, you're looking at about a three and a half percent annual return, even if that index does not move a stitch upwards. If it stays exactly where it is for five years at 4175, you're going to get an annualized three and a half percent return. Which exceeds, the, which exceeds the dividend yield. Which exceeds the dividend yield, courtesy of a negative interest rate. Okay, but here's the kicker, right? You've paid 25%. So your maximum possible loss for five years, you've got your tail protection locked in at 25%. You cannot lose more than 25%. But I postulate that you don't even risk that. Why? Because all you need to do is price up what, an, let's just say the index does plummet. It does drop from 4,100 down to 3,500 or even 3,100, so a thousand point drop. Volatility sometimes expands a little bit if the index is going to drop a thousand points from 4,100. And if you price up and at the money option, which you will then own effectively with say even two years left of its life, let's just say that this unfortunate event happens three years into the life of your option, you will probably break even. You will probably get to fetch exactly the same value for that option at uh, an elevated volatility as you've paid for it today. So I don't think you're taking the risk. You're getting all of the upside that long index buyers are getting. And you're also getting a repricing of interest rates. So if interest rates kick up, you just have to play with the parameters on, on Bloomberg Terminal if you've got one. And you'll realize that if, if interest rates pick up, the value of your call option increases dramatically. I'll leave it at that. Well, so that's, a, that's a backwardation example, yeah. Right. Let's take that a step further. And I'm sure you, you and your marketing people, I'm sure that the equity derivative desk at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are out promoting these to CalPERS, CalSTRS, endowments, the like. Why aren't people embracing this more? Is it an issue of credit risk? Is it an issue of sophistication? Is it, a, is it an issue of investment duration? Why is this not being embraced? Because again, from this conversation, it sounds like a no, yeah, to use the expression no-brainer, it sounds like a no-brainer. Why isn't yep. this being broadly adopted? In much larger scale, you've got concern for all of the factors that you've nominated. To go out and buy, to replace your equity portfolio with a whole bunch of call options certainly has career risk should anything go wrong. And there's, there's five years duration for that. The ability to support is does you can pick up a five-year option on, obviously come with their own sets of credit risk. There is the obvious underlying and change to fundamental change to the markets that you're locking in for five years. There are a number of factors that can control weightings or changes to that index, which would need to be brought in on the ISDA contract. So there's probably a few too many unknowns to, uh, to be comfortable with doing just replacing your equity portfolio with a call option. But nonetheless, my example of a backwardation 
a very real and live example of a backwardation is just actually one of a plethora of examples that you can go out and buy options where the forward curve in either contango or or backwardation, uh, we're actually at being tail risk kind of people, uh, we're actually more interested in the contangos, uh, the ones where you can buy put options uh, significantly cheaper than where the spot uh, market is. Those are the interesting ones to us. And obviously, you can mix those together in a portfolio and be long volatility because all the while you're buying volatility. So you want volatility to expand. That in a nutshell is, I guess, the way to evaluate how much emotion you should price into your option today is take a look at the underlying. Got it. So give us an example of a, a market that goes into contango where put options can be, and the implicate. I know you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago about the Taiwan dollar. I don't know if that's the best example of this, but talk about an example of effectively a similar sort of scenario to the Eurostox, but flipped on its head with the buying of, of put options. Yeah. Taiwan dollar is a good example. I can circle back to the beginning of our conversation today with what central banks have done. Prior to 2008, there were some interest rates around the planet. Countries like New Zealand actually had sort of 8% interest rates heading into the heading into the GFC. And in fact, I think central bank and New Zealand central bank actually hiked rates at the beginning of 2008, which was an interesting move. If you look at the pricing of a forward in, in equities, I've, I've already touched on this, but interest rates are a factor. So if you start to get big positive interest rates, in actual fact, the forward curve shifts into contango and back in those days prior to the prior to the gfc in actual fact you could buy put options as long as you got enough duration to pick up a forward curve and to pick up some contango they were dirt cheap they really were cheap irony is that ahead of ahead of the biggest crisis that we've had that put options were really cheap and that underpins i guess my argument that Volatility is an emotion. If you really are looking for an accurate value of how much to price an, an, an option, then take your feeling on where the forward price is because that's what volatility is. So current examples, Taiwan dollar is, is one that you and I have chatted about. Taiwan dollar is obviously under the spotlight at the moment because of the squeeze on semiconductors. That little anecdote aside, Taiwan against the US dollar doesn't tend to be a flight to safety currency. It, it tends to be a bit of a risk-off environment type investment in uh, the flight to the US dollar. In the case where Taiwan dollar interest rates out nine months are about negative 3%. You can pick up Taiwan dollar, uh, nine-month options, Taiwan US dollar, significantly cheaper in US dollar terms so that you get, you've get you got a US dollar call option and Taiwan dollar put option that becomes more valuable for the entire nine months that you own it. You buy the option today. If the Taiwan dollar stays exactly where it is, the exchange rate, then your option... Um, Actually, about doubles in value if you strike it, right? So you're talking about a 100% return on your option in about nine months. And in that time, if there is a, an, an equity market crash and, cor and correlation is what it has been in the past where the Taiwan dollar also finds weakness at the same time as equity markets find weakness, then you've got a tail risk protection option that has got the characteristics of doubling it in its value if there is no tail event. So now this is where things get interesting from a portfolio construction perspective, because now you go, well, 
Obviously, correlation is important here because I'm not going to get any tail protection if, if the Taiwan dollar doesn't actually crash together with equities. So, and I'm very likely to pick up a 100% return in a normal market environment, provided that Taiwan dollar doesn't go roaring on in upwards in strength. What other options can I pair this, this up with in order that I've actually got a quasi-market neutral portfolio that is long volatility, where I'm likely to pick up the forward increases with every option that I've got, but benefit from some tail protection. And turns out there are a whole bunch of stuff that you can pair up a Taiwan dollar option with, provided that you're prepared to look pan-asset class. Look at your commodities, look at interest rates. Interest rates in particular are fascinating because if you're support the thesis. Even if there is a little bit of inflation, a lot of inflation is currently priced in. Uh, you, you mentioned in the, in the introduction, five-year rates over 1%. So if you say, well, if there is a proper equity market crisis and central banks are going to come in to the rescue, as per usual, and drop interest rates down to zero, you can buy receiver swap very much the same way. That will become more valuable every single day that Jerome sits on his hands. Just an, another interesting tail option. If you're looking at this from a portfolio of long volatility strategies, you mentioned pairing things with the Taiwan dollar, right? So the first thing that popped yep. in my head when you pair something is correlation risk. Right? Yep. How important or how relevant is correlation risk to a portfolio of long volatility strategies? Or are the things that you're looking at so idiosyncratic that the correlation risk is actually reduced because of the idiosyncratic risk of each underlying instrument? Yep. Idiosyncratic options are obviously extremely useful in their own right, particularly if you've got long-duration idiosyncratic options where you're just buying this thing and you've bought it on the Kelly criteria. You've basically the, Sorry, the amount can you of it, for those for those who are not aware what the Kelly criteria is. Can you please explain that for everyone, please? Yep. So basically, Kelly, I think, is a chap that put together a set of gambling rules for casino gamblers in Las Vegas. He's mentioned in the book. This is terrible. I've read it a gazillion times, and I'm just just at a loss for words what the title of the book is. But basically, if you're sitting at the roulette wheel. And it's not a traditional, this is the way to describe Kelly criteria, and it's not a traditional casino. In actual fact, you've got a floor manager who's manning the wheel behind the casino there, and there's no one on the floors. No one's, no one's betting, no one's playing. That particular person's at liberty to go, okay, we're going to pay out at 40 if you hit a number on the head on the roulette wheel here. Now, that obeys positive Kelly criteria. In other words, you don't actually have a positive expected return on your next bet. You put a, a uh, you put a bet down on the roulette table now, and if you got double zeros, you got thirty-eight to one chance of winning. So you're probably going to lose your next bet, but it is still a good bet because if it pays out, it's going to pay forty to one. So you just continue to play that bet. You must continue to play that game because you've got a positive expected return. Kelly criteria is in your favour. That. The longer you continue to play that game, the more likely you are expected to make money. So similarly, and this is great volatility analogy, when everyone's crowded into the casino, the croupier behind there is going, I'm paying out at 30 to 1. I mean, everyone's betting on this table here. Step away. Do not play that game. It's a negative expected return. Volatility is too high. There's too many people playing. There's too many people buying these bets on the roulette wheel right now. 
if you get paid out, you're going to get paid at 30 to 1 for a risk that you're taking at 38 to 1. Not good. Don't do it. So that's Kelly criteria. Now, back to the, the original question, which is how do we assemble the portfolio of options taking into consideration the correlation of the portfolio? Correlation is essential. In actual fact, there's no flaw in the argument whatsoever. It's, it's a perfect portfolio. It's a perfect arbitrage if I can guarantee the correlation. So if I can guarantee when, when we put it on that we're going to get the correlation that has been in the markets, then, then it's a perfect portfolio. It's, it's going to work. There's no risk to the fact that you're going to make money no matter what happens. But that's not the case. <laughs> correlation exists and changes in correlation are not an, not an if, but a certainty. Uh, correlation will change and correlation changes have to be monitored. And therein lies the, the real skill and the real mathematics behind constructing a portfolio of long volatility and also options which are designed to work together. For those who've read Money, Moneyball, the Michael Lewis Moneyball example is a great way of thinking of this. If you're trying to assemble a portfolio of options, you can go and pick star players. Absolutely, there are options out there which you look at them and they've got unbelievable Kelly criteria. They're going to pay out at 100 to 1 if you get them right and you're only taking 38 to 1 risk. Definitely buy those options. Those are your Babe Ruths of the option business. Doesn't mean to say they're going to make money tomorrow, but if you continue buying those options, you're likely to make. That's not going to help you with correlation though because it might not tie in to when you most need money. And it certainly is not going to improve your compound annual growth rate in exactly the same way that our clients uh, depend on it. In that when there's a crisis, you get a whole bunch of cash to help you buy markets on it when they're down. So what you need to do is, is actually start to use Michael Lewis's Moneyball type investing where you're assembling a team of options. And teams of options basically work together when you've basically just got a set of statistics that is more likely to beat the markets than they're not. And it's, yeah. Interesting. So, mate, I want to get into three three questions which are sort of very almost, almost like philosophical questions around markets. And I think they're important ones to address, particularly in the context of what we're talking about here. The perennial debate that I have with clients, folks I meet for the first time talking about markets is I think markets are deeply flawed. Deeply, deeply flawed. The notion that markets are all-seeing and all-knowing, that on any given day that the price is a true reflection of fundamentals at that point in time, I think these arguments are complete and utter rubbish, right? I look at the price of Amazon, for example, and I have family offices that own Amazon. If I was to go and talk to Jeff Bezos, for example, he owns a lot of Amazon. And it's pretty undeniable that Jeff Bezos, as the biggest owner of Amazon, should be someone who is influencing the price. Yet Jeff Bezos can go months and quarters without ever trading Amazon stock. My family office can go months and quarters without trading Amazon stock, yet on any given day, the price of Amazon can move between 2 and 5% for no reason whatsoever outside of the algorithmic world that is driving price on that given day. So I would argue that if, if, if you think that the quant world in terms of short-term algorithmic trading is all-seeing and all-knowing, then that statement about market price being all-seeing and all-knowing is true. You've spent the last half an hour 
basically reinforcing that viewpoint that forward curves are not all seeing and all knowing, that they are not predictive, right? How did, what, what, what are your thoughts on the market being forward looking? You've made some implications on that already, but just elaborate on that for me. Yeah, look, the option prices are definitely not forward looking because they are an emotion which is very much anchored on today's feeling. So you're on marriage day effectively trying to predict how your 10 year marriage is going to go. It feels all bubbly and it's definitely going to work. So that's true in some cases. I had more time decay in mine, mate, because mine didn't get to that 10 year. I was only four year <laughs> options on mine. So, yeah. yeah. Four years is a decent amount of time and an option life time to, to get more volatility than you predicted upfront. Four years is actually a long time into the future. So back to your question, option prices, let's exclude those from being well or mathematically or quantitatively sound because the whole thesis of our alpha is that they are not. Now we have to look at the underlying prices, which are more interesting. As far as market regulation goes, they have to swear by the fact that they've, they've got this where all information is perfectly distributed in time and to make a free and fair market. Anything other than that is not compliant. So perhaps I should just end my answer on that particular one there. <laughs> From a compliance standpoint, I think there is significant opportunity for price change outside of what's evenly distributed market knowledge. And certainly over the years, there've been enough situations where an algorithm has come in or an algorithm has even been manipulated. So, so someone knew that there was an algorithm there and, and knew how to trip it up. Those examples have littered the history of, of markets. No need to say any more. All right. And correct me if I'm wrong. I've been looking out, and I don't have the skill sets to do this, but I think there is a tremendous market for a research product that does research on algorithms. I know some of the investors, I know UBS, UBS Derivative Desk does a good job at this sort of thing. But I think that there is a tremendous market for knowing, for research into that are borderline attempting to be predictive of the forward, you know, the forward attitudes of the forward actions of, algori you know, of algorithmic investors, both particularly short term, but over the medium and longer term as well. Yeah, I think big banks, best positioned just because of the amount of flow, they get to see the, the order flow, which is a very useful insight when you're looking to position algorithms uh, into doing anything because you can add the parameter of, of flow. So I don't think that would be a, a, a hedge fund function just because they don't have all the inputs to do it accurately. ETFs, those who are operating big ETFs could quite possibly tackle that particular problem. Got it. Another issue, which I think obviously doesn't as applies less to you, because frankly, you're solving for this issue. It's long volatility as a performance track. And obviously you are taking, you don't have the performance drag that other more generic option buying strategies would have for all the reasons you've, you've explained. But talk about the, the, rudimentary use of options and the performance drag that that has and whether or not theoretically it's worth it's worth the performance drag just in terms of the simple buying of puts as protection against a portfolio is is it even worth it yep i have to be very clear here that the, in in 
no stretch of the imagination is this answer discussing 36 hours performance. This is just generic response to performance of options to the market. When you buy an option, when you buy volatility, the expectation is that you have paid a premium for your emotion. Uh, you're expecting something will happen during the life of this option or that you're prepared to pay to protect yourself against a certain quantity of something happening. And if, if more than that happens, you will be compensated for it. And the option seller says, well, look, my gut feel is that over the life of this option, I'm being adequately compensated for anything that might happen if I get paid X. And, and that's basically it. Once you've bought volatility, once you have paid for an option, you have, for those who are into to the, the Greek annotations uh, behind options, you have theta decay. Your option should become less valuable because all of what you've paid is time value. You've basically paid for a whole chunk of time to have optionality. And that will dwindle to zero uh, when the option expires. So everything we've spoken about prior to this is actually how to compensate for the fact that you're going to lose um, all of that gut feel. All of that emotion is going to sum to zero when the option expires. So what you need to happen is that the underlying price becomes different by a larger amount. In other words, that you've paid for, call it this much, and the market is going to displace more than that. So... This is where forward curves help, is that you obviously are asking the forward to displace by more than you've paid. And it's certainly useful if the spot price is already displaced by more than the, than, than the, the amount you're paying for the option. And that's, that's the kind of example we're, we've been speaking about, where right now today, it's, it's clear as day that the spot price is more displaced from the forward price than the amount that you're paying for the option. That's useful because it, it helps deliver uh, more than the emotion that you're paying for. What about the theta decay? What about the long-run performance? Our good friends at the uh, CBOE obviously publish a whole bunch of data, and they have the PUT index amongst a whole bunch of other indices that, on average, you should be selling volatility, that you should be receiving the premium, you should be receiving the amount of emotion that people are overpaying for because they're paying for what ifs and, and what about and not actually getting compensated as often as, as they're paying for it. They're just paying on average too much. So the Kelly criterion, going back to our friend Kelly, just that you're getting a 30 to one payout on a 38 to one odds, accept that bet. Take the money for someone wanting to take that bet. That would be the sensible solution. However, there, there are other ways and that's to look at where emotion is on average, undercompensating the, the the seller of the option for what might happen. And clearly, last year was just the left tail of all left tails. I mean, the central banks central banks genuinely had this under under wraps. Central banks had this under control, except a pandemic. <laughs> that was proof, I guess, that tail events are the ultimate unknown unknown. If the markets have predicted, if the markets have fairly priced what is known then they will predict the outcomes that are unsavorable or unsavory, sorry, unfavorable. Those are priced into the option values. Just take any day like yesterday uh, where the markets were elevated. Immediately, the, the VIX, the volatility index, which is basically the premiums that priced into the S&P 500, 
immediately the VIX elevates. Immediately, people's gut feel, people's emotion is such that you have to pay up more for volatility because it could get out of hand from here. You know, we, we're pricing in, you know, the markets have already moved some and, and we've got to now start pricing in the fact that this could get out of hand. All's forgiven um, the next day. Yeah, and, and obviously that does imply that the snapshot from AMC, GameStop, this sort of thing, the the option buying frenzy that we saw, which again, clearly, you know, that's not a traditional use of optionality in terms of portfolio protection. This was purely for speculation. The implication from that and what you've just said is that this strategy is, is an unsustainable one going forward. The strategy of... of- also, the, the GameStop AMC buying calls at a 300% out of the money, that sort of erratic speculation in sort of meme-related companies, that that eventually is an unsustainable strategy. Yeah, once again, it just comes down to the amount that you pay. Look, originally, before the memes hit headlines, you were probably paying a reasonable amount of volatility from, from the perspective of the seller. They thought that they were being adequately compensated for the amount of price movement that could take place. What ensued, however, was significantly more price movement than the seller of an option was compensated for because something else happened. Now, it's arguable that some of those option buyers knew very well that they were about to start manipulating the stock price by memeing it. It's arguable that that they were in possession of information that really helped them make an emotional decision about the value of, of the option. The ultimate result is that the gut feel value of these options is now taking into consideration some significant price movement in the future. It's likely too much. Got it. So I asked this of a lot of people, and again, I've never had a good answer of this, even though I've done this for a very, very long time. Outside of strategy, if you have exposure to European equity of selling that European equity and buying deep in the money five-year forward calls, we've discussed the merits of that. But why do I care if I'm a an endowment, a family office, and I've got a 20-year liabilities I need to match, if I've got a generational view on return, why do I care about volatility-adjusted returns? Right? Why, why does it... rate. Compa- your CJ, CAGR, if you're solely focused on your long-run returns, then investing alongside a correctly-sized volatility component improves your compound annual growth rate. And it's as simple as that. You cannot outperform a mixed investment just with an outright investment profile without some exposure to volatility. Doesn't that imply that you have to have a positive expected return on that volatility, i.e. employing a, a firm like yours to do that, right? If we take volatility away as an asset class, right, then if we are just an, a long-only strategy, right, across all asset classes, including, I'd argue, strategies that are difficult to hedge private equity and venture capital as well, Right? Why do I need volatility as a strategy, a buy and hold strategy? Now, embracing a firm like yours that takes, that buys options that are below a, an, expected, an expected, expected fair value, that makes sense. But why do I need to think about the volatility adjusted return profile if I have a generational view? Again, the ergodicity of it, that the timing of, of when you get your returns is extremely important. And this is why it improves your compound annual growth rate. 
everyone likes to frame the return of their volatility in that if I spend $10 upfront and I continue to do that and I buy, I buy volatility using $10, what will my long run expected return on my $10 be? And if it's not more than $10, then, then you're talking about a negative expected return. But the timing of when you get that return is so important. Take last year, for example, if you'd invested in volatility anywhere, say five-year volatility, anywhere in the, the five years prior to the COVID crisis, and you got delivered a very chunky amount of cash in June or July last year from your volatility investor, who would have seen it was quite impossible to, to reinvest into elevated volatility at that time and, and had just delivered a very healthy return. Sorry to interrupt. Did you return money in June of last year to clients based on, um, that, based on that thinking? Cl- clients, uh, clients usually like to redeem when after any sort of 2008 event, 2011, December 2016. Usually, there's been performance and some profit taking, and 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 clients prefer to to redeem, or some prefer not to redeem. But nonetheless, if you're one who does redeem in those times, like a, a long-term endowment, probably just want to keep the actual investment and volatility proportional to the rest of the portfolio, what would you have done with a whole bunch of cash in June last year? It's a rhetorical question. The equity markets were roaring. And so if you look at the compound annual growth rate of the entire fund over a long period of time, it is improved by pairing up whatever you're doing with a long volatility strategy, just purely because of the ergodicity of it. When you're getting performance is much more important than how much. And this is where Perondo's paradox comes into it. Perondo's paradox is in actual fact, you can pair up two negatively returning strategies to create a positive outcome. Uh, So you you don't really want to invest in long volatility with the valuation that it is negative performing. It's how it fits with your portfolio. Neil, thank you very much. We're running up against time, but thank you very much for this conversation. I found this fascinating. I found this absolutely fascinating. And you dispelled a lot of, a lot of um, misconceptions that I have. We're going to have to get you back again soon. This was a great conversation. Look forward to it, Paul. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you.